In one of the hymns we have already sung this morning, there was a reference to, if you noticed, and I hope you did, because we're supposed to concentrate on the words, the rapturous singing up there. Rapturous singing. Is that accurate, that there will be rapturous singing? Oh, yes, indeed. Because the word rapture carries the idea of joy, something that is joyful, something that is extremely pleasurable. But I dare say that that is not the meaning that most people in the religious world today attach to the word rapture. They attach a totally different meaning to that word, and to that word they attach this meaning, that the Lord silently and secretly, generally thought to be prior to a great tribulation of seven years that is uh, still to come according to uh, the dominant theory in dispensational premillennialism, that prior to that tribulation period, the Lord is going to secretly and silently snatch away the righteous and that they will suddenly be gone. As Hal Lindsey years ago in his book, The Great, Great Planet Earth, spoke of the scene where cars are going everywhere and running off the roads because the drivers have been snatched away secretly and silently by the Lord in the rapture. And it is generally believed that that rapture is fairly close to being a reality, that we truly are in the last times, and by the last times they mean times in which that rapture is imminent. And then there will be that great tribulation upon the earth for a period of time, and then the Lord will ultimately return with his raptured saints, and he will establish a kingdom on this earth and reign for a literal thousand years. And of course, all of this is generally based upon a passage of Scripture which we will study this morning because we are studying the book of 1 Thessalonians on Sunday night. And since tonight we will be worshiping in song, I thought it appropriate to simply move that series to the Sunday morning worship period. And especially since we are ready to deal with verses that are cited by a great many religious people in the world today as verses which definitely teach that a rapture will be a reality. But let us simply state at the beginning that despite the popularity of the rapture, and that's an understatement to say that it's popular, is a gross understatement. It is extremely popular and terribly prevalent throughout the religious world. Let me state at the outset, there is no such thing. It will never occur. The word is not in the scripture, and the concept is nowhere to be found in scripture. And I make that statement with the utmost confidence, and I don't make it to try to hurt the feelings of anyone who may mistakenly believe in a rapture, not at all, but to simply point out that if you do believe a rapture is coming, you have been misled. Do I doubt your sincerity? In that belief, not at all. But we must understand that sincerity about something is not sufficient. We must be sincere in what we believe, but we must also believe what the Scripture clearly teaches 
on all matters, and especially those, obviously, that pertain to our eternal salvation, those that are, those that are crucial to our salvation. We can have some differences of opinion on some matters that are neither here nor there, matters of judgment, but when it comes to the end time, not the end times, but the end of time, we need to fully understand exactly what the scripture teaches about our salvation, what will happen when the Lord comes again. Will he come to secretly and silently rapture the saints some seven years before he returns with those saints? No. And yet that's the belief that is derived mistakenly from the passages that we'll be looking at, the verses that begin with verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And we'll read 13 through 18, and these will be the verses we'll consider in our study together today. I'm reading from the New King James translation as usual, where Paul writes now, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First of all, we need to understand what precipitated this particular section of this epistle. What precipitated it was a mistaken idea on the part of these Christians at Thessalonica. Some of them had the mistaken idea that the Lord was going to return almost immediately, certainly within their lifetime. In other words, when they obeyed the gospel of Christ, and they did obey the gospel of Christ, and they understood, of course, that the Lord was going to come again, they understood that second coming, but their mistake was that they believed that second coming was, was imminent. Well, there are those today who, who have told us uh, time and time again it's imminent, and they keep telling us time and time again it's imminent, and it doesn't happen, but they are obviously mistaken. Do we doubt their sincerity? No. And of course, we know that these brethren were sincere in their mistaken idea here. But because of their mistaken idea, thinking that the Lord was going to come again in their lifetime, then there were their loved ones who were Christians who were dying. Some of these Christians died after Paul had been with them not that many months earlier and had converted them and they had died. Now those Christians who were still alive were thinking, well, they died before the Lord came. And somehow they're going to lose a part, if not all, of their reward as a result of not being alive when he came, when he comes. And Paul writes to correct that and goes on to do so in the second Thessalonian letter in more detail. But here he makes it abundantly clear that there's not going to be any advantage for anyone to be alive when the Lord comes again versus having died before the Lord comes again. No advantage whatsoever to being alive when the Lord comes again. And that's what he's conveying to them. And so he says, I don't want you to be 
ignorant. He did not write, I do not want you to be stupid, brethren. That's not what he said. He's not saying they are stupid, nor are we saying that anyone who believes in the rapture today is stupid. There is a vast difference between being ignorant and being stupid. Being ignorant is just simply to be uninformed and needing more information about something, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And that's what we're hopefully doing here this morning. As we look at these scriptures is to reinforce what Paul clearly wrote and to say to anyone who may hear this uh, sermon uh, through the internet or on CD as we distribute these sermons or anyone who's here today that we do not want you to be ignorant concerning this matter as so many are today who have mistakenly bought into the rapture theory. You know, this phrase, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, is used more than, than once by the Apostle Paul. It's one that he seemed to be kind of fond of as he was saying to these brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. He did the same thing over in, uh, over in 1 Corinthians concerning uh, spiritual gifts as he wrote to them about uh, spiritual gifts, that he did not want them to be ignorant in that regard, in those uh, chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14, where he dealt with speaking in tongues and so forth. In chapter 12, verse 1, he said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And so now he says it again here. Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant specifically about what? About those who have fallen asleep. Now that's an interesting expression, isn't it? Those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? Not those who were literally sleeping, but obviously those who had died. But the figure he uses to describe those who had died is a figure that definitely counters the idea of what? Annihilation at death. And there are those who say that we're completely annihilated when we die, that we're like Rover, we're dead all over, there's nothing more, and that is it. And yet, what does he say? They are asleep. Don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who what? Sleep. Yes, the body is in a position that is much like the position when we sleep. But that does not mean they are in a state of unconsciousness. The body is at rest. It is sleeping, as it were. But the spirit, as we see from an abundance of scriptures, has departed in the paradise, uh, in the realm of the Hadean realm called paradise for the righteous, Tartarus for those who are unrighteous. But here, keep in mind that the subject under consideration is the righteous. He's not dealing with the unrighteous. And that what gets, gets some people into trouble about this, thinking that there are two resurrections being discussed here when there are not two resurrections being discussed at all, as we shall see as we go forward. But this matter of sleep is something that simply reminds us that that's a metaphor for or figure of speech for those who have died. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, the great resurrection chapter. Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What's he saying? We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. There'll be people alive, in other words, when the Lord comes again. They'll never sleep, the sleep of death. They'll be alive when he comes. But again, he uses that same figure. But Paul was not the only one to use that figure, was he? Remember, the Lord himself in John chapter 11, verse 11, concerning his good friend Lazarus, he said to his apostles, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Well, 
think about it. Many of us here today, maybe all of us, we don't know, will one day sleep the kind of sleep about which the Lord spoke concerning his friend Lazarus. But isn't it reassuring to know that just as he did with Lazarus, the Lord is going to wake us up. The Lord's going to wake us up. Our bodies will be at rest. Our spirits will be conscious, obviously. And the Lord will reunite the body and the spirit at his coming. And so death is pictured as a sleep in reference to the body being at rest. And so that's what he refers to it as here, a sleep in Jesus. But that's the key, isn't it? Those who sleep in Jesus. That's what we have to make abundantly clear, that we have to set about in our lives to make sure that when that sleep comes, we sleep in Jesus, that we are faithful when that time comes, that we're faithful even in death, not five minutes before death, but we're faithful even in death so that our sleep will be a sleep in Jesus. And if we undergo that sleep 10,000 years before the Lord comes again, we will in no way be at a disadvantage over those who are alive 10,000 years later if that's when he comes again. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to see here. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. And then he says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Does Paul say here that I don't want you to sorrow over your loved ones who have died? No. He does not say, I do not want you to sorrow over your loved ones who died. If so, if that were something that were indeed imperative, we'd be doing wrong when we sorrow when our loved ones die. Who can believe that? Well, certainly not. He's not saying, I don't want you to experience sorrow. Jesus experienced it, didn't he? Over death. And others did, obviously. He's saying, I don't want you to sorrow as others who what? Who have no hope. How much difference is there in the sorrow that we experience for loved ones who've died, who've died in the Lord, versus the sorrow that we experience for those who have no hope? A lot of difference, isn't there? A lot of difference. And I dare say that every one of us, perhaps, I know I have, have experienced the sorrow of those who've died for whom I could offer no hope based upon what I know the scriptures to teach. And that's not something that we enjoy at all, not at all. And that's an understatement, isn't it? It's heartbreaking to the greatest degree. But let us determine that we're not going to be those individuals who at our death will produce in those who are left behind a sorrow that is, a sorrow for those who have no hope. Let's live in such a way so as to die in a way so that those whom we leave behind will not sorrow for us in the same way as those for whom we sorrow who have no hope. Because it is a terrible thing. But he didn't want them to sorrow in that sense. He said, for if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those spirits will come out of the Hadean realm. They will be reunited with their bodies. There will be that wonderful reunion of body and spirit. And it is all predicated upon 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he says, if we believe that Jesus died, he's not expressing doubt. Since we do believe, is the idea, since we do believe that Jesus died and rose again, then as surely as he did, then God will bring with him those who have died in Christ. And then he adds, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is authoritative. This is authoritative. This is inspired teaching. You can count on this. Here it is. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, we're not going to go off and leave them. We're not going to precede them. We're not going to have any advantage over them. And when he says we who are alive, it is obviously the use of the editorial we. He's not saying that I expect to be alive when the Lord comes again. Paul didn't believe that. He didn't know when the Lord was coming again. So he wasn't expressing confidence that he was going to be alive when the Lord came again. Was he alive? Uh, he died. The Lord hasn't come, obviously. But he's simply talking about those who are alive, using the editorial we. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means have an advantage over those who have died in Christ. Keep in mind, he's talking about the righteous dead. Where are the wicked dead? They're not under consideration here. That's important to remember. They are not being considered here. And then he gives us a further description. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now notice this. And think about this in terms of the rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? Shout! and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now what about the rapture? The rapture will be a silent and secret snatching away. And they base it on this text for the most part. This has been called, what I've just read, the noisiest verse in the Bible. The noisiest verse in the Bible. And many base their belief in the rapture on it. Secret, silent, snatched away. From heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Noisiest verse in the Bible. How can it describe a so-called rapture? It does not. It simply describes the second coming. The second coming. The only coming that's coming is the next coming of Christ. He's not coming back to rapture his saints. He's coming back to raise all of the dead, including the righteous who are under consideration here. Now notice, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Right there is where so many miss it completely. They say, there it is. Dead in Christ will rise first. That's the rapture. That's the snatching up of, of the saints. Silently and secretly? No. Shout, voice of an archangel. When he says the dead in Christ will rise first, does he mean the dead in Christ are going to rise first and then sometime later the wicked dead will be raised in another resurrection? No. He's talking about the same resurrection of the righteous and the wicked 
But he's not discussing the wicked because there was no point in discussing the wicked. Why not? Because these Christians were not concerned about the wicked dead. They were concerned about their Christian loved ones who had died and thinking they had lost their reward. And he's saying, no, they haven't. They'll rise first. First before what? First before all of us who are alive at that time will be caught up. They're not going to be left behind. That's rather ironic since there's an entire series called Left Behind, which teaches by a man named Jenkins and another man named LaHaye that there will be a rapture. An entire series called the Left Behind series, all based on a completely fictitious and totally false doctrine. The dead in Christ will rise first before what? The wicked? No. But before all of us who are alive are caught up. What about the wicked at that time? They'll be there as well. Why is Paul not discussing them? We've already said it. Because they were not mistaken in their thinking about the wicked dead, weren't even concerned about that. They were concerned about what had happened to their righteous loved ones who had died. Now, how do we know that he's not saying that the dead in Christ will rise first and then the wicked dead will rise later? Because to say such would be in complete, in complete contradiction to what is clearly taught throughout Scripture about a general resurrection of all the dead. And all I have to do is take you to one passage, John 5, 28 and 29, the words of Jesus himself. Do not marvel at this, he said, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. There it is. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will come forth. Well, somebody says, well, that all can be limited, though, sometimes. It could be all the righteous. No, I'm not finished. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave shall come forth, they who have done good to the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There it is. The Lord made it clear they're all there in one resurrection. Some will be raised to life eternal in heaven. Some will be raised to eternal punishment tragically. But all will be raised at the same time. John 5, 28 and 29. So when Paul here says the dead in Christ will rise first, he obviously means first before what? Verse 17 really explains it. Look at it. Then we who are alive and remain. You see, they'll be raised first before we're caught up, not in a rapture, but at the resurrection of all the dead. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Those who died in Christ, they'll all be together. Wicked will be there as well, same time. Caught up together with them in the clouds. Now notice this. To meet the Lord in the air. What about Christ setting foot on earth again? What about Christ reigning for a literal 1,000 years? It will never happen. It will never happen. We'll meet him in the air. Someone says, well, yes, the raptured saints will meet him in the air. Well, we've hopefully already taken that out of consideration. But they might say, well, no, the, the righteous will meet him in the air. And then seven years later, they're going to come back with him. No. Look at the next statement. And thus 
In this manner, we shall what? For seven years be with the Lord. Does your Bible read that way? Need a new one if it does, I tell you. Thus we shall what? Always be with the Lord. Where? There. Never here. Never here. There's not a verse in Scripture that says the Lord will ever set foot on the earth. Someone says, well, is that back in Zechariah? I know he's got one foot on uh, the Mount of Olives here. The Mount is split, etc., whatever. That's a talking, that's a passage that prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem and his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It's a figurative expression for his judgment upon Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with the Lord ever setting foot literally and physically on this earth again. In fact, the Hebrews writer argues that he can't do that and be in harmony with Scripture. Why? Because, again, Zechariah prophesied that he would be a what? He would be a priest and what at the same time? A priest and a king on his throne. Is he king now? Is he king now? Yes. Therefore, he is what now? He is priest now. But the Hebrews writer says he could not be what? A priest on earth. Why not? Because he was not of the priestly tribe of Levi, but of Judah, and therefore couldn't be a priest on earth. But he is a priest forevermore after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, where must he be priest? in heaven can never be priest on earth. I didn't make that argument. The writer of Hebrews did. And Zechariah prophesied that he would be, he would be priest and king at the same time. He's king now, he's priest now, but not on earth. And so there are many passages that make it abundantly clear that the Lord is not going to set foot on this earth and Paul didn't miss it. He knew that, obviously. He wrote by inspiration when he said, We will meet the Lord in the air, and thus in this manner we shall always be with the Lord. With the Lord. And then the final verse of our study. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that reminds us that the Word of God is a word of comfort. It's a challenging word. It, cha uh, it challenges us to obey it, and it comforts us when we have. And it continues to comfort us as we continue to obey it. And for all those who are faithful to the Lord at this very hour, you can take comfort with these very words we have studied briefly today, knowing that when you sleep, if you remain faithful, you'll sleep in Jesus. And because you will sleep in Jesus, when the Lord comes again, he'll wake you up to an eternity that your finite mind cannot fully appreciate and comprehend. It's greater than the finite mind can fully grasp. And that's the comfort that all of us who are Christians today have from this comforting word. But for those who are here this morning who have not expressed their belief in this word and in the one who authored it through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, 
you do not have that comfort and that anticipation that you can have this very hour. How? By believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By repenting of your sins, by confessing Him to be the Christ. And then by being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. Jesus said, believe that I am He or die in your sins, John 8, 24. But He didn't stop with faith only, as so many tragically contend. He said, repent or perish. Change your mind and change your life or perish eternally, Luke 13, 3. And then he said, confess me and I'll confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And then he said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Making it abundantly clear that the culmination of our faith must be in the waters of baptism, where not the water, but the blood of Christ that is applied as we submit to that burial cleanses us from every sin and allows us to rise from that watery grave comforted by the fact that we have complied with the Word of God, a Word that will continue to comfort us from that time forward as we continue to comply with it and follow the pattern set forth in it. So that whether we live or die, when the Lord comes again, it will be a time beyond comprehension in terms of the joy that awaits the faithful. If you need to come home to your first love this morning as one who has known the joy of forgiveness and salvation but knows that you have not lived in accordance with the will of God and that you are no longer comforted by the word but confronted by it, then you can return to that state of comfort by returning to the Lord who will comfort you by forgiving you as we pray with you and for you. As we stand to sing, will you come?